Welcome to the Graceway Bible Church Podcast, a place to be immersed in teachings from God's Word. We hope you will be blessed by the Word of God as we discover together what our Heavenly Father wants us to understand. If you would like more information about our church, how to know Jesus as your Savior, or teachings from the Bible, visit our website, www.gracewaybc.org. Join us now as we dive into God's Word. I used to have a gym at work and time to use it. I'm trying to get in shape. Trying. And I'm not in good shape. My dietitian has told me that my body fat percentage places me in the overweight category. Not obese, but not in shape, not athletic. Now, I don't really have a problem with my body, but uh, you know, I want to feel better, both mentally and physically. And so I want to hold myself to a higher standard. It's not for others, it's, it's for me. Uh, I know from experience that I can do better. I know because I had a gym at work and time to use it. Now, don't get me wrong, I have an even better gym now, but I don't have time to use it. The gym is in my home, and my wife got it for me for my 43rd birthday last October because I, being the mature and considerate husband that I am, pestered her for several months once the gym at work was gone. And this thing is amazing. It has everything I would need to ensure that I look like James Bond emerging from the sea. But I have a hard time finding time to use it. Now, at work, I used the gym at lunch when I had an hour-long lunch, but then our hours changed and the gym went away during the pandemic. And we're back in the office full-time now, so I can't go home and work out at lunch because I work 45 minutes away. So now it's either the morning or the evening. Okay, I'm a parent of three kids who are all under the age of 12. And frankly, we're exhausted before we even wake up. School dropped off and daily prep in the morning. Uh, we have activities and bath times in the evening. Oh, look, it's 9.30. I guess I'll have to work out tomorrow. Kids stir in the night and get sick and routines get thrown. It's a lot easier stopping at your desk and walking downstairs at the office to work out than it is stopping your sleep and going downstairs and trying to quietly work out in the morning. I say this because I've heard all the advice. You should make time. It's not a lack of time, it's a lack of priorities. Successful people get up three hours before work. You only need four to six hours of sleep. I know. I get it. I've heard all the solutions, and they sound simple enough. I've heard them several times. But last year, 2021, I tried to get in shape, and I made time. And then I twisted my ankle. And then I got in a car accident. And then I started having problems with kidney stones. I even have some now. I'm like a renal Dalmatian. It all set me back. This year, I started the year with COVID. And then Dean had a virus. And then we all got it. And then Henry broke his nose. And then on top of that, we have house projects, we have errands to run, diapers to change, a house to clean. These, these are not complaints or excuses, they're just 
What's going on? Maybe it's too much. But my marriage and my fatherhood and my work have to be my priority over my body. So when I say I'm trying to get in shape and someone responds, well, you need to make time for it, they just don't understand. They don't know me. They don't know what I'm juggling. And I feel like I have to kind of explain ahead of time, even before they give me any advice, so I don't get a simple answer for a complicated experience. Have you ever been there? I've seen a few, oh, and I heard a yes. All right, great. <laughs> maybe it's not about working out, but maybe you're going through something, well, you want to share, you need to share, but they won't understand otherwise. Sometimes the easiest answer is where we gravitate. We live in a world of memes. Our days are often spent scrolling through quick stories on Facebook and TikTok and Instagram with the shortest messages, with the most content leading the way. The average length of a reel on Instagram is eight seconds because that's how long the human attention span lasts now with social media. Memes can bring attention, which in an age of pandemic economics, the market is flooded with influencers and content creators seeking to deliver concepts in short enough bursts that will retain your attention, but long enough to get the full message across. One can make a living on it. And this is not to criticize of, of anyone who does that. I've met a few people with hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram, and I've met them in person, and we share an enthusiasm for similar things, maybe James Bond, and I personally would love to contribute something if I had anything to add to the zeitgeist of, of all the content that's out there. But despite meeting some of these guys in person, despite that, and spending even some hours together, they don't know me, and I don't know them outside of what they barely present. We miss something in our culture of cutting to the chase, both in telling our stories and in hearing them. As Christians, we know that we have an extra obligation to bear each other's burdens, to let our conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, making the most of every opportunity. That doesn't sound like cutting to the chase to me. So we should be rightly bothered by Eliphaz in Job 15. If you'd like to turn now to Job 15 in your Bibles. We know people like him. We know people like Eliphaz. They have a common theme. They know the rules. They find a simple binary position, stick to the perceived righteousness of it, they're not slow to anger, they're not slow to speak, and they always seemingly are ready for an argument, never ready to have their mind changed, almost like they get a kick out of the argument. As we heard last week, Eliphaz thinks Job is arrogant and irreverent toward God, and I'm not going to go through everything in Job 15 here, but uh, we see something hypocritical in his tone. Uh, as we learned last week. And this morning, we deal with Job's response to guys like this, uh, to those who have the quick answers about where and to whom. Uh, uh, Job's response to guys like this, to those who have quick answers, and where to whom he will turn and where we should also turn and be honest um, and open with ourselves. I'm going to ask my son and my daughter, who are sitting in the audience here still today, 
to come up here and give me a hand as instructed. All right. So Audrey, caps off just a little bit there, so I'd hold it to the side. There we go, Henry. Caps off a little bit there. Hold it to the side. You go, Audrey, if you go over that way. All right. Great. Test it yourself and pass it on. Now, as an overview. If this is your first Sunday with us, or if you haven't been here for a few weeks, we're in Job 16 and 17 now, so if you'll turn there. And we're walking into the middle of a conversation that is getting heated here. So we've already heard the one side of the argument last week, and then we've heard, now we're going to hear uh, one side of the argument this week. Um, and this is the second set of arguments between Job and his three wise friends. As we've discovered in the last couple of weeks, the convincing has turned a bit hostile uh, on the part of this friend, Eliphaz. Eliphaz has asserted that Job is suffering because Job is arrogant and irreverent toward God. And now Eliphaz is doubling down because Job has not acceded to Eliphaz's view. He accuses Job of windy knowledge, thinking he is the first in all creation, and even asks him, how can man even be pure anyway when even heaven is not pure in God's sight, on ver verses 12 through 16 of 15. And then he goes on to, to declare that Job must be wicked. For the wicked, uh, there are dreadful sounds in his ears, and a destroyer comes upon him. And um, Job is running stubbornly against God and covering his face in excess. And in verse 31, it says, let him, Job, not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself for emptiness will be his payment. Some friend. We need to remember that as we approach 16 and 17 that this is also a poem. And Job's response in, in balance, is balanced against Eliphaz's criticism in kind of a poetic return um, at the beginning here. So that's where we're starting with Job's response to Eliphaz. And in a way, it's a response to those who offer advice for things they don't really know anything about and where he and we should turn from here. So Job uh, 1, 1 through 6, Job is responding, I've heard many such things. I'm, I'm starting verse 2, actually. So, uh, I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do. If you were in my place, I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips would assuage your, your pain. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Job says, Eliphaz, you're just the worst. I could do a better job at this than you, and I would end up actually helping you. If I speak, it does me no good because you're after me, and I have no comfort. And if I keep silent, it also does me no good because this pain and grief remain. You guys came here and were supposedly going to be comforters here, and now God has shown me that no one's coming to help. And then Job does what we would all do and retorts with another explanation of what he's going through. He's trying to, you know, you don't get it. And then, so he starts with verse 7, Surely now God has worn me out and has made desolate all my company. He has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me. My leanness has risen against me. It testifies to my face. 
He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me, and my adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He sets me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I've sewed sackcloth upon my skin. I've laid my strength in the dust. We almost get this image of a lion ripping him to shreds and being surrounded by a firing squad. Now, I haven't seen too many firing squads in my day, but I've seen a few lions. And you don't have to go far on YouTube to see you know, vicious attacks at a zoo or, or uh, some you know, you know, person that, uh, let's just be polite about it, a person who walks into some sort of a pride in, in the Afari and at uh, uh, Serengeti there, and you see the attack, and you can see what they do. And, you know, we have stuffed animals of lions everywhere, but, but we know full well that we're going to have a very high electric fence at our zoos. And so when Job's describes his insides being ripped out and being torn to shreds, he's responding to Eliphaz's rebuke that he doesn't have this proper respect. So Job is saying, you don't think I fear God? You don't think I had appropriate fear of what God could do to me and my children? You weren't there when I was offering sacrifices for my kids, uh, my adult children, in the off chance that they sinned while they were out of my sight. You don't know me. You want to see a person respectful of God? You don't think that I fear God? I'm living the fear. What is stuck in your imagination is my day-to-day. -day. Everything you fear will happen to you if you are evil and wicked is happening to me now, and it's a one-sided battle. I didn't do anything to provoke it. Job's explanation appears to be a realization here for him that his so-called friends don't know him, and Job has also just given up. Not only given up to explain to them, but he is also giving up. He's not fighting God. He continues in verse 16 and following, I have sewed sackcloth on my skin. I have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red not with anger or backtalk to God, but with weeping. I am not rolling my eyes at God. My eyes are sinking in from grief. And then Job brings us to the point here. Although there's no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. Pure prayer. We can see the dichotomy, the dichotomy here. Violence versus prayer. Very clear uh, that it is different. There's more to it. Excuse me. Violence is what others can see. Prayer is what others cannot see. From the external to the internal, from the transient to the transcendent. Others can see when we have blood on our hands. Last week when Will Smith hit Chris Rock at the Oscars, the whole nation could see that it was wrong if they were being honest with themselves. Maybe the Chris Rock joke was out of line, but Will Smith really crossed the line himself. We know violence. It's not something that is hidden. And violence is the extreme of human behavior. 
While violence can be amoral, meaning that it can be used for good or evil, Christ tells us that we're supposed to steer away from it and turn the other cheek. We're to be slow to speak and slow to become angry and to seek to love our enemies just as much as our friends. Violence is the last resort for faithful believers. And there are several layers of the external between violence and nothing. But prayer, prayer is something else. We are reminded of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount about the pagans that stand on the corner, on the street corner, who have received their reward in full because they like to be seen. They like to let other people know what they're doing. But the disciples are supposed to go to a secret, quiet place where God hears what is said in secret. Now, when I was assigned this passage about three months ago, I really didn't know what I was going to do with it. Uh, I mean, what more can you say? What is pure prayer? Is it just praying with a pure heart? And if so, why doesn't just Job say, well, my heart is pure? So what is pure prayer? And so I did the lawyer thing, and so I started looking up things um, and looked up the word pure in the English dictionary, and well, that didn't help. I mean, we all know what it is to be free from imperfection, to be clean, but here... Pure is a little bit more than that. Now, I don't have much training in Hebrew. Um, the word used here um, for pure, though, I looked this up, is zakah. Now, you're probably saying to yourself, aha, zakah. What does that mean? Well, I will tell you. So, zakah is one of many words used for pure. There are several forms of the word pure riddled throughout the Old Testament, but here, zakah is different. Zakah is used only three times in the Old Testament. One here, obviously, but the other two are in Exodus 30, 34, and Leviticus 24, 7. Now, I went and I checked those passages out. Now, what does that mean? And you know what they're for? They're, in Exodus 30, that involves the perfume being placed right next to the Ark of the Covenant, and Leviticus 24 involves the specialty bread as a food offering to the Lord that the priests were uh, were given to eat as this food offering. In both instances, pure frankincense was to be used. For the perfume, frankincense is supposed to be blended with some sweet spices. And for the bread, it's sprinkled actually on top of this bread here to add to the aroma of this freshly break, baked bread for, for the priests and uh, as the food offering. And so, and they were supposed to be set especially within the tabernacle. Both instances are ceremonial, holy, set apart, and prohibited from being copied in the outside world. So I've been passing around a couple of vials of um, pure frankincense oil and because I wanted to convey a point. I think when Job mentions his prayer is pure, he's saying that his prayer is set apart and holy before the Lord. Just like when you go to an old bakery and you walk in and that distinctive smell of fresh bread fills your nose and it's, it's unique. It's recognizable. The frankincense, likewise, is a distinctive smell. My wife doesn't like it. But it derives from this rare, naturally growing tree that can't be reproduced or duplicated. You just have to find it and when you get it, you get it. And that's why it was so special back in the day. 
And so when we see pure frankincense being used to create a special aroma for God's pleasure at the tabernacle, for the aroma of the bread of the priest and the food offering for the Lord, we see here that the purity of prayer is supposed to be similar. As Jesus explained, it's supposed to be something special. Pure prayer is not your typical routine prayer. It's not the one you say out of habit. Rather, pure prayer is the one of integrity, the one that matches up with your external appearance. It's the most honest and truthful of your prayers, the ones that you set aside and you mean them. How often can we say we really make sure that our prayer life matches our outward life and vice versa? I'm personally guilty myself of rushing through prayers, sometimes for things that are at the last minute and being the one who's uh, volunteered at family gatherings to say the blessing just before a big meal. And those prayers are important and they can still be true, but pure prayer is more. It's that secret, honest prayer that is lifted up to God as we humans, bound by these constraints of time, speak to the one who is not bound by time. That God himself smells the aroma of our honest, undistracted prayer. And it pleases him like a fine perfume or fresh-baked bread. And it's, it's especially more when you're going through, I think, a time of suffering. If you can imagine the stillness, the quiet, and the deepness of one who is suffering, we can imagine because many in this room, and many that who are not in this room, we know have suffered in some way or another. These are prayers we are true to ourselves about what's really going on. Because in the closet, there's nothing else to hide. So you might as well be honest. Job is saying, guys, you can see that there's no violence or blood on my hands, but that's what you know. But where you cannot know, where only God can see, that is pure as well. So, now, Job is done with his friends, but his journey this week is not quite over. In Job 16, 18, and following, he has now realized that his friends are not going to help him, that God is both, both against him in his mind, and that he doesn't have any strength left to fight. He's not fighting. But he also, though, wants to be understood. Job wants to be known, not in a famous sort of way, but to have someone really know him and what he has gone through, where he doesn't have to explain anymore, but rather where he can have also an advocate, someone to speak for him, and he's looking heavenward. One commentary interpretation by uh, uh, J. Gerald Jansen reads, it says, the tone of this outcry gives voice to the horror that engulfs the soul when the truth of one's own life becomes confined within its own privacy, closed off from public view because of misrepresentation and falsehood. Job is voicing the need for a truth of his life to be known. Perhaps we can relate. I know I can. Last December marked 20 years from a pretty traumatic event in my life. Uh, before I met my wife, Jessie, uh, some of you may know, I was actually engaged to another woman um, named Melissa. We met in college, and to simplify the story, we got uh, engaged about uh, after 15 months, and exactly one year later to the day, and nine days before our planned wedding, she broke up with me in front of her parents. And to say I was devastated was to oversimplify it. It was not like many of the ladies had been knocking down my door to begin with, maybe if I had had more time to work out. But it took me a long time to get over. Years, in fact, 
A number of mistakes and poor choices of my life stemmed from that event. I received a lot of well-meaning consolation from family, from friends, even from professional counselors. But at the end of the day, no one knew. No one could understand why it hurt as much as it did and why I couldn't get past it. There was this loneliness that accompanied the rejection that was worse than the rejection itself because they didn't know the history, they didn't know the loss, they didn't know the reasons for the breakup, and honestly, they didn't understand the questions that I had because I didn't even understand the questions that I had. And I think that that's what's conveyed in Job's words here. O earth, cover not my blood and let my cry find no resting place. Don't let me die I have some solace here. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God that he would argue the case of a man with God as the son of man does with his neighbor. He's seeking some sort of an advocate. He doesn't know who it is, but somebody in heaven's got to advocate for him because his friends, they're no good. Someone who can speak for him. He's turned from his friends. He's asking God for an advocate to represent him in his case before God. And he wants his case to be known, but in a deeper level, he wants to be represented by someone who really knows him like he knows himself. Not just knowing the facts, but knowing the man, understanding him. The commentary continues, to know that one is known in congruence with one's self-knowledge and to know that one knows oneself in congruence with how one is known, these are complementary aspects of what's meant by a good conscience. This is the integrity of life. Job first sought this confirmation from his friends. He turns to heaven for a witness. And here we see this, this sudden new shift with Job because he spent several ver- spends several verses rehashing how he has nothing to look forward to. His life is ruined. He has no past anymore. He's too old to have a future. He can't just build it all back. He sees that his friends are just mocking him now, and he's lost uh, any sense of reputation, dignity in front of uh, anyone. No one likes him because he's, he's falsely accused of being flippant with God and refusing to acknowledge this non-existent sin, and he calls on God to sarcastically say, oh, Mr. Upright over here and Mr. Righteous over here are getting stronger and stronger the more they talk, as if they're getting something out of it in some way, while he, Job, is wasting away. But in the end, Job gets this, this second wind. But you, come on again, all of you. I shall not find a wise man among you. My days are past. My plans are broken off. The desires of my heart, they make night into day. The light, they say, is nearest to the darkness. But if I hope for Sheol as my house, he's talking about death here. If I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you're my father and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? If I die now, what, you know, what good does this do me? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? He's fired up all of a sudden. He knows he cannot turn to earthly witnesses, so there's this elusive question. Who can he turn to? Where is his hope for an advocate? He closes out the chapter pondering, if I just suck it up and die, I might get an answer in heaven or at least have someone in heaven know what happened. But Job doesn't seem to be satisfied with it alone. He wants to be seen he, wants, he is seeking hope. He wants someone to understand this. His hope is not um, just to be deprived of the suffering, but it appears, that someone, uh, will, it appears that the hope is that someone will understand and be able to advocate so it will be known in the truth of his situation, in his suffering to God, and then, well, that's it. 
the chapter ends. At least for this week. Job never really gets the answers he's looking for here, but I'm not going to leave you on that note. Job may not, again, and may not get an answer, but there are events that happen between the days of Job and this first week of April 2022. And the Apostle Paul gives us something to leave with, as, and we will close with this. You ask, where is our hope? Who will be an advocate? Where does your pure prayer go? We as believers are already told in Romans 8, 18 and following, for I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Then a little further down in uh, verse 25. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. When we offer pure prayer, the Spirit of God hears you in the stillness and in the pain. He's more than just a translator. He is also an advocate for us, expressing in ways that we don't even know how. Their spirit makes you known to God. And the prayer offered honestly and truly is translated in a way that God knows it. We are heard. We are known. And God recognizes the prayers of those who have been made righteous. In the same way that we recognize a distinctive, pleasant aroma, God recognizes us and knows us. And he loves us, even if we don't have time to hit the gym. Thank you for sharing in this message. We pray it will make a difference in your life. Please consider joining us for our Sunday morning and evening worship services. For location and more information, visit our website, www.gracewaybc.org and listen next time to learn more. May the God of peace richly bless you through his Son, Jesus Christ.